Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network and also on YouTube for all of you watching. And it's Mark and Mark back again this week, uh, Mr. Daly and Mr. Hamilton. And uh, Mark, it's uh, we're one week closer to the start of the season, and we had some car launches this week. It's it's getting real, my friend. It's it it's it's literally almost here, but not quite. Thirty-eight days, seven hours, and fifteen minutes from the moment that we record this podcast. And for those of you listening at home, I think today is. February 18th. It's a yep. Thursday. You'll probably be hearing this on the Friday, I hope. But yeah, 38 days away. And honestly, we're just a week away now from being able to say, this is the month of Formula One. And to your point too, um, I had completely forgotten that there was a car launch this week because they, for so long, they just felt so far in the distance. I know, and you know, I yeah. went for a run on Monday and I came home and I looked at my phone and people were counting down. It was like four minutes till the launch. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. And for us in Canada, it was actually a holiday. So we were actually able to watch it, watch it live, but absolutely incredible exciting that we're inching closer and closer to the start of the season. Yeah, you know, it was really exciting to see. I mean, uh, we had uh, McLaren kicked it off on February 15th. Uh, Alpha Tauri is going to kick it off tomorrow, which is uh, going to be the, the, the 19th of uh, February. Williams officially reveals their car on March 5th. Aston Martin, March 3rd. Alpine, March 2nd. Ferrari, March 10th. I'm just jumping all over the place. Mercedes, March 2nd. So, I mean, that's going to be an exciting day. Got a couple uh, of uh, car launches that day. And then the only two that aren't confirmed at this moment are Red Bull and uh, and Haas but uh, yeah I, I'm getting excited now uh, I, but I'm really impressed you had that nailed down literally to the minute there for your for your countdown calendar well done my friend I, I, I check regularly. It's, it's one of the, it's one of those things where I, I always check the weather every day. What's the next seven days look like? I always check to see when sunset is because I love those long summer days. And here in BC, we have some really short winter days, but mm-hmm. I also check the countdown. Like and I basically go to Google, like how many days until March 28th and it <laughs> auto populates as soon as I type H and I get my answer. So, uh, I probably checked three times today. There, there you go. That, that's a whole new level of uh, dedication. So Mark, uh, before we get into the news uh, tonight, I actually want to dive into the mailbag uh, a little bit uh, earlier than uh, we usually do here on the show. We got a really cool uh, email from Isaiah Allen. I'm just going to read it out here. Hey boys, love the pod and I'm a big fan. I just listened to the episode where you guys touched on viewership and one thing you didn't touch on is what brought me into uh, becoming a fan of F1 was actually Drive to Survive the Netflix uh, series. Uh, I hadn't even known what formula was up until my friend suggested I watch it. Now my whole friend group and I hop on a Discord call to watch the races together. I loved it so much I actually subscribed to the F1 streaming package because I wanted to go back and watch older races since I'd only picked up the sport last year. I've also met some other people like myself that began watching races after the drive to uh, survive. And uh, fellow Canadian, great, uh, great to hear. And that is really cool. Thanks, Isaiah, for uh, for reaching out and letting us know that story. And that is really cool because uh, that I, I think that is something. And we completely uh, looked over it. I mean, you and I have been, you know, we, we've been fans for a long time. But I think that uh, you know Isaiah and his friend group are the. I, you know, exactly the reason why I think they did that program to, to bring Formula One to a whole new, you know, sort of untapped uh, group of uh, people. And I think it's really cool to hear that, you know, they're, they're jumping online, you know, they're, they're watching the races together and, you know, props to him to go back and actually go into the archives and watch uh, some of these older races. I mean, we got like 70 years. I don't know how many they had in the archives now, but, uh, when uh, when I was subs- uh, subscribed to it, I went back and checked out a lot of old races. Uh, you know, even going back into like the early '80s, which is like ancient history, but uh, really cool stuff. 
Yeah, I completely agree. First of all, shame on us because we didn't make that <laughs> connection, that association, and, and talk about that. But but you're you're absolutely right. And and for those of you that didn't hear that segment, we were just really talking about Formula One viewership and that it was largely flat last year, despite everything that was happening. We talked a little bit about a lot of the fact that many of the broadcasts in many countries are moving beyond paywalls. That a lot of the younger demo are streaming illegally and they're maybe not being caught in the ratings kind of net. Um, but I think this is a great point, right? Which is Netflix has an incredibly broad audience. Um, they're exceptionally good at marketing their internally produced content. And I think, again, the Netflix demo tends to skew a, a little bit younger. If you look at the numbers, they tend to attract a lot of people in their 20s and their 30s, which is actually mm-hmm. the demographic that if I'm Formula One, I want because they have disposable income, like the, unlike those 50 and 60-year-olds that are probably sitting at home and maybe fertilizing their lawn, but they're not going out to spend <laughs> a lot of cash. Um, so this was a, an unbelievable initiative. I don't think anyone's clear on how the economics work here. And it's understood that potentially Netflix is helping to fund the, the programming. But even if that's the case, it's just an exceptional marketing vehicle for the sport because you can reach an entirely new audience. And, you know, I work in an office, or at least I did until the pandemic hit, of 1,200 people. And there was one other person in the entire office, my, my buddy Gil, who I could talk Formula One to. Mm-hmm. Nobody else knew it. Nobody else cared. And I didn't have the energy to try to promote it. But all of a sudden, that, that show drops and everyone, I shouldn't say everybody, but tons of people were talking about it that I never, never, ever in a million years would have imagined watch the sport. And it it was really interesting. And I think the question then is how many of those folks then convert into watching the season? And even if it's 1% or it's 5% or it's 10%, that's a win for Formula One because that's a entirely incremental audience to their bottom line. But yeah, and and I got to say as well that Box to Box, which is the company that produces it on behalf of Netflix and Formula One, they do an exceptional job. The product is absolutely top notch. Um, obviously, you and I watch the season very closely, probably more closely than a, a lot of the casual fans. We watch practice and qualifying. We watch all of the interview segments with the panels and all those kind of pieces. But even for me, going back and revisiting the season, something I now look forward to doing every single season. Um, I'll, I'll mention as well, and we tweeted this out today, um, Box to Box, the, the company that produces the series, uh, tweeted out today that they have finished producing the upcoming series. It's it's a wrap, it's done, and they've handed the final product off to Netflix. So hopefully we'll learn in the next week or so when season three is going to debut. It's it's really cool. Uh, I, I mean, I'm really glad that there's a new season coming about. What I was really uh, Im- impressed about, like you said, it was an absolutely top notch uh, production. And I think that the, the the first season, yeah, there you go. There's the the the, the picture that we tweeted. Uh, but you know, I think what was really impressive is just to watch how it's evolved over just the couple of seasons that they that they started with. You know, we're go- like you just said, we're going into season three. But season one was interesting because it had eight out of the ten teams, and they had the two teams that you really wanted to see, and they didn't participate. That was Yep, Mercedes was one and Ferrari was the other. But, you know, that notwithstanding, uh, I still think that they told the story of the 2018 season very, very well. I think it was really done fantastically because it, was, it wasn't it was done in a linear fashion. It, it was to a certain point, but it wasn't like, okay, here we are, you know, it, it's basically start in Brazil all the way through to Abu Dhabi. They kind of jumped here and there and kind of pulled on different threads. And I thought it was really interesting. And, and I love the way that they did it too. I mean, it was kind of subtle. I mean, there, there was an obvious lack of uh, Ferrari and uh, Mercedes uh, participation that uh, you, know, you saw in season two. 
but uh, you know they they kind of dropped in some stock footage uh, here and there, which you know I think you you have to do. But I think it was really interesting because they kind of dropped in some of those interesting subplots that we saw that year, like the the whole Renault Red Bull saga, and then the you know the 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 Ricardo uh, story, and all these different things. And then it was very interesting when you had season two come out because then you had the participation of all the teams, and you know the the one moment that really stood out for me was after the German Grand Prix, you know, that that wonderful, wacky, wet race that we had. And, uh, you know, we saw even Lewis Hamilton go off and put it into the gravel and struggle around. And it was just so cool because there's so many times uh, and, uh, you know, been, being a journalist myself and, you know, specifically with soccer, you know, I've sort of been here and there when behind the scenes and sort of, you know, more by pure uh, like you know, luck sort of become a fly on the wall in some very interesting situations. And I've often thought, you know, watching Formula One, God, you know, I would love to be, you know, behind the scenes here. And going back to that race at the German Grand Prix in 2019, I thought it was fantastic because, you know, Lewis blew it and it was like their, their anniversary weekend. They had the special livery on the car and, you know, the team was all dressed up in, you know, the old fashioned uh, clothes and everything like that. It was really set to be a big Mercedes homecoming, a big party and everything. And it was just a design disaster result for them and it was just great to see afterwards you know lewis just in you know casual clothes he's talking to toto in you know some boardroom or some office somewhere and just the raw emotion just like you know how upset lewis was and it really though it really captured the whole drama like the everything of the the entire race i thought it was wonderfully done and if the season one and two are anything to be based off of i'm really looking forward to season three you know hashtag uh pandemic season or pandemic edition should be uh, really cool yeah, prior to the debut of the season one, and I guess it was 2019, yeah, because it would have been 2019 recapping 2018. My fear was that it was basically just going to be a race by race recap, and, and you nailed it. That That's not the approach they took, and they made it really personal, and the amount of access that the programmers have been able to get to the drivers and their families and the team principals has been remarkable. And I think one of the things that was most interesting to me is that season one, it didn't bother me whatsoever that you didn't have Ferrari or Mercedes. In fact, I'm so familiar with those drivers. I think, I feel like they're almost overexposed. Mm -hmm. I was happy to learn about the other drivers and the other teams. And I think, and if you haven't seen season two, I encourage you to do it because that season made a rock star of Gunther Steiner, his leadership (laughs) style, his personality, the way he interacted with his drivers and the team was remarkable. And and I loved the authenticity and the sincerity. Like he curses up a storm like I do when we're off the air, but, uh, (laughs) He curses up to storm. His leadership style is is totally out there, but they don't hold anything back. So I I hugely encourage people to go and look. And it's funny too, because if you and I reflect back on the 2020 season, we can probably start picking up on some of the storylines and narratives that they're probably going to dig into. And I, I don't want to spoil any of the surprises, but I cannot I cannot wait for season three to drop out. It's, and I'm not one of those binge watchers. Like I, I tend to like to piece things out and watch them over an extended period of time to make them last as long yeah, as possible. Too. I'll probably go all in on this in a couple of days. Yeah. You know, the one thing I really appreciate too is the amount of access that they did give to the the, uh, the, the the producers of this uh, series because you know coming from a media standpoint you know you get that nice little pass with the lanyard and everything and it gives you a lot of access but it 
only to a certain point. So to see that these guys, you know, like there was one uh, I seem to remember from the season two where, where they're, they're sitting in Gunther Steiner's kitchen. He's having dinner with his wife or something like that. I'm just like, this is unheard of. And it is just really cool how they do it. And, uh, you know, at, like you say, especially with season one, the fact that they didn't have the big two teams, and they really gave the the other personalities in the paddock the chance, to, the, the opportunity to expose, well, I don't want to say expose themselves. That's, that sounds a bit rude, but uh, <laughs> gives them the opportunity to, to shine a little bit more, come into the spotlight. And uh, I, I thought uh, it was uh, really, really well done. Re- really looking forward to it. And, you know, uh, you know cheers to Isaiah for, for reaching out because I think that's a, a great story. I'd love to know what, what the true number is uh, of how many people have really been, you know, you know, tuned in or started turning turning into the Formula One as a result of that. I think that's uh, really, really cool stuff. So let, let's get into the news itself. And first of all, we have a couple of up, updates on uh, some driver health issues. So Fernando Alonso, who was in that uh, cycling accident last week, has uh, been released uh, from uh, from hospital a couple of days ago earlier this week. Uh, so uh, initial uh, examinations and x-rays showed that he had a fracture to his upper, upper jaw that required some surgery. Uh, his doctors seem happy how everything went and saying that it was a completely successful uh, operation. So, uh, you know, he, he was actually going to be in uh, the, the hospital over the weekend for observations, but he has been subsequently uh, discharged uh, and he was, you know, in, you know, under observation for 48 hours, which you would imagine, uh, you know, that sort of injury and any potential concussion issues and things like that. Um, so interesting to hear that he's out, but I'm really, you know, curious as to how long and what, you know, how this is going to affect his preparations for the season. I completely agree. And one, I'm, I'm super happy and excited that he's, he's well, he's healthy. Um, it sounds like he's has every intention of being in the car as quickly as possible and being back at the factory in the simulator, um, getting ready for the season. So that's all a good news story. I think one of the things that I, I'm starting to try and reconcile myself with is the fact that he's going to be back in the sport. And you know what? I made peace with the fact that he was gone. And you know what? At the end of that tenuous relationship with McLaren, I think it was probably do, but I, I'm really amazed that he's going to be back. And, and this is a guy who's going to turn 40 midsummer. I think his birthday's in July. So he's going yeah, to be then. by a fairly significant margin. Well, I guess he's going to be the second oldest driver after Raikkonen, but <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see what he can do this season, what the expectations are. And yeah, I'm, I'm very, very curious to see what this season's going to look like for him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it is going to be one of these fascinating stories to watch over the course of the year, and and especially this uh, this whole incident that he's had and the subsequent injury just uh, adds another level to that uh, that that story. But uh, just to you, you, oh, sorry, you look like you want to say something. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I I'm bad at that. But no, I was just going to say, like, just to put his career into context, this is a guy that won titles in '05 and '06. When he won that 06 title, that was already his sixth season in the in the championship, and that was 15 years ago. Like, just just think about where you were and what you were doing in 2006. And I think for a lot of our listeners, that might be elementary school or middle school or high school. But 2006, that was his sixth season, his second title, and that was 15 years ago. So again, I'm hoping he does well. I, mm-hmm. I think it's good for the sport. I think it's good for the sport in Spain as well because yep. I think he does so much to generate interest um, in that country. But yeah, moving on. 
I think we have another health-related story we should probably touch on. Well, we do, and it's still somewhat of a related one because it has to do with his former team, uh, McLaren, and that uh, it's Lando Norris, the uh, current McLaren driver, says he's now fully recovered after uh, uh, well, catching COVID uh, was about uh, a month ago. Uh, so he had announced in early January, just after the holiday break, he tested positive for for COVID. He was, uh, you know, he was down in Dubai taking a holiday before a, a training camp. He had to uh, complete a 10-day uh, period of self-isolation before he could even go back to the UK. So he's, uh, well, <laughs> I, I've almost lost count of how many guys, uh, how many drivers uh, have uh, you know caught COVID over the past uh, number of uh, months. Anyways, uh, Laura, uh, Norris had to say, quote, I think luckily for me, COVID wasn't too bad. It was a few days or so of, ha- of initially having no taste, no smell, the normal really, and just feeling very drained and tired for a couple of weeks. Since then, I've basically fully recovered. Everything's back to normal. I wouldn't say that it really affected me too much apart from the bit of training. I wasn't allowed outside at all. I didn't have a window or anything. I just had to do some basic workouts in my room. No cardio, no runs or cycles, but just doing what I could in my room. That was all. Apart from that, since then, it's been a bit more bit more back to normal at my house back here in the UK on my bike on my treadmill whatever all the normal stuff neck training and just getting back in the hang of things but other than that I'm good end quote so good to hear and again it's um it seems to be the real story of the uh, you know this whole pandemic that it seems that uh, you know the the younger and the fitter you are it just uh, seems to be, I don't want to say an inconvenience, but uh, it, it, it seems to be a lot less severe than some of the horror stories that uh, you hear about, uh, you, know, you know, in other situations. You know, the biggest takeaway for me from this story is, once again, it's, it's another driver being exposed to the virus in a completely preventable circumstance, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, you got to remember, it was only not even a month ago that you and I were sitting here talking about the fact that Pierre Gasly got COVID on his vacation to Dubai, where there were photos of him on the beach doing selfies with fans. Mm-hmm. And then Norris is in Dubai and he also catches COVID at a beach hotspot, allegedly. And then it's also now reported that Charles Leclerc got COVID in Dubai as well. Like, I get it. Like, that's one of my favorite places on the earth, and I cannot wait to go back there. But if I'm a driver with a multi-million dollar salary, you know what? I'm probably going to bunker down for the off season to try to put myself in a situation where I'm not unnecessarily exposed. It sucks. And you know what? I get it. I'm a multi-millionaire 21-year-old who wants to travel the world and get a break from the the gray, drizzly British weather. Like Dubai is a great place to go, but I I just feel that there's a lack of responsibility on some of these drivers. And furthermore, I'm, I'm fairly shocked and a little bit surprised that the teams themselves aren't enforcing some control. And I I don't want to say control over the drivers because that sounds terrible, but I just feel like, Hey, if you're under contract, we're going to ask you for this one off season to do us a a big solid and Mm. just stay close to home. Don't travel. Don't put yourself in a situation because you're right. These drivers are young and hopefully they'll, they'll be able to get over this. But we also don't know what the long-term effects are from a cardiovascular perspective or any of those pieces. Like yeah. why, why assume the risk? So for me, I'm kind of annoyed. I'm kind of annoyed. And you know, we talked about this last year with Perez as well, that he flew to Mexico. And again, there were some implications associated with his mother being unwell and things like that. But this is totally unnecessary vacation travel to a hot spot in the sun that didn't need to happen. So I'm a little bit annoyed at the drivers, but I think I'm more frustrated that the teams are allowing this to happen. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I'm going to just drop a couple of truth bombs here, a couple of shocking revelations, uh, or revelations, I should say. Number one, I'm, I'm not 21, not anymore. Number two, I'm not a millionaire. 
Number three, I'm not world famous. Well, I am, I guess, internet famous to a certain degree because of this podcast and uh, YouTube show. But uh, anyways, I would love to go to Dubai or to anywhere that's not my house or the grocery store or the gas station. <laughs> but the fact is, you know, a lot of us are, and, and I understand. I mean, the, these guys, they work hard. They're, you know, it's it's a very intense job. But uh, I, I don't think, like you say, it's it's a huge ask from the, from the teams to their drivers that, uh, guys, we know you want to get out there. You want to do all these things. But, you know, for the next couple of months, at least till these, you know, vaccination programs start, uh, you know, ramping up and totally. substantial percentages of uh, populations are getting inoculated and the numbers start legitimately coming down and, and we've yeah. seen some initial promising results in some countries uh, and and areas around the world yeah it's just like you know we all want to go we, we all want to go somewhere guys but uh maybe i'll just cool i'll just add as well because you brought up the suit the, the grocery store piece like and i think we're still fairly lucky here in bc mm-hmm. um knock on wood it's not as bad as it is other places. Um, we have our health. Um, we're, we're okay. Um, but I'll be honest, like the highlight of my week is every day I pick my son up from daycare. And I'm like, <laughs> do you want to go to the big Walmart or do you want to go to the small Walmart near our house to look at toys? And that is the highlight of our week is every night, do we go to the big Walmart or do we go to the small Walmart? And then on the weekends, like, do we go to the Costco close to our house or do we go to the Costco on the other side of town? Like it's that, that's, that's what our lives I are. I, I would love I to go to somewhere in a vacation hotspot, but it just doesn't make sense. I know we we actually started discussing what we wanted to do for summer holiday this uh, this year, and I'm just like, it seems seems a little bit premature. <laughs> it's just totally, like, totally. <laughs> it's just like a summer holiday might just actually be in my backyard, but who knows? Anyways, yep. let's uh, wrap the segment up here and uh, let's take uh, our very first break here on the Overtime Media Network. And we come back, we've got uh, a lot more news uh, to discuss, uh, including well, lots of Red Bull news, and we'll get to that right after the break. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, well, we uh, already been through some of the rundowns of some of the car launches and some of the dates coming up. And there has been a lot of Red Bull news, a lot of discussion about uh, Red Bull uh, this week. And uh, the the big one, of course, is Red Bull is uh, they've uh, reached a deal to keep using the Honda engines until 2025. They're going to rebrand them and they're going to have a new operations called Red Bull Powertrains uh, Limited. And uh, th- this is really, really uh, exciting. And it's 
it's it's great. I mean, we talked about the the, the fact that they um, agreed to the engine freeze going from 2022 to 2024, and it really just uh, it finally just lined up everything uh, that uh, Red Bull needed to acquire that IP to Honda's uh, power units and uh, keep using them uh, through this interim uh, uh, time period until the new engine uh, formula is introduced in 2025. And I think this is uh, I think this is really great and. Uh, it's kind of interesting too. It's it, it. I find it kind of exciting, an interesting prospect that uh, not only are they uh, going to be taking this over this IP, but the fact that they are now becoming a legit work team. You know that uh, that they're not going to be a customer anymore, even though they've had success with the with the, you know buying engines uh, from from other parties. I, I'm really interested and excited to see what they are going to do as an outright you know engine and car ma- manufacturer. I think it's cool for the sport. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I think you and I spoke about this really going back the past two or three months. Formula One cannot afford to lose engine suppliers. Uh, We're heading into some fairly uncertain times as 2025, 2026 rapidly uh, approaches. I think F1 needs to do everything it can to incent its existing suppliers to stay within the sport. So Ferrari, Mercedes, um, Renault slash Alpine, um, and of course now the, the, the works team that is is Red Bull, that the sport needs it for legitimacy. Um, it needs it to continue to at least have some some kind of grand premium formula prototype series S. Like my, my biggest fear always is that Formula One goes down that path where it ends up being a single power unit series or a dual power unit series like we see in Indy, which is currently kind of running that that Honda hybrid versus Chevy hybrid series, but could potentially become a single engine. Like So for so much of me, for so much, so much for me of formula one is this mass, I would say, I would say structure that encourages, incentivizes innovation and differentiation between all of the cars. And my, my biggest fear always is that we end up in a situation where, and I get it, like the cost caps are a good thing. Some standardized components are a good thing because it creates some additional parity and it creates some additional competitiveness. That's, that's all good. But I also don't want to be in a situation where every Every team is buying their chassis from the same company. They're running the same power units. They're running the same tires. I like to see some variation and it it lends some real legitimacy to the series. So this is a hugely good news story. And like we talked about last week, um, there's a couple of kind of knock-on effects of this. Uh, The first is that the engine freeze is going to be pulled forward from 2022 to 2022. So uh, the current engine spec will be frozen after the season. So 2022, 2023, 2024 will be the exact same engine. Teams cannot innovate. Teams cannot continue to tinker with that design. And then the new engine, the new power unit, the new engine formula, which was originally designed to land in 2026, will be brought forward to 2025. And you and I had all kinds of conversation about that last week. But yeah, I'm I'm ecstatic. I'm also really interested in the branding. Like it was yes. thought that there could be a marketing tie-up with this power unit, and that doesn't look like it's the way they've gone. So to your point, like this is really now a full-on works team. And the other cool thing is too, it, it looks like they're working to concentrate all of the assembly and development into Milton Keynes in the UK. So Milton Keynes is not even an hour outside of Silverstone, but during the last three or four years, as they've been kind of embarking on this journey with Honda, the bulk of the heavy lifting with respect to the power unit and the development of the power unit was still happening in Japan. So really in this case, they're buying the designs, they're buying the IP, but the actual manufacturing will eventually be concentrated in Milton Keynes. So within a single city, they'll do almost everything from their simulators, 
Cheers to their body shop, to their paint shop, to their aerodynamics, to the power unit. Everything's going to be concentrated within a single city, which is going to be hugely, hugely powerful for them from an efficiency perspective. So I just realized I've been rambling on for a while, but <laughs> I'm clearly very excited about this. Not to mention the fact that they're going to be able to share the same power unit with uh, AlphaTauri, which is fantastic because the more data that you can get running these power units, the more you can improve them over time. So huge win for Red Bull. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it really, <laughs> you don't have to zip it. You made some really great points there the, in your your, your ramble. Uh, anyway, so you really touched on a couple of good points there. And uh, the, the, the first one is the naming rights. And I think due to the fact that they decide to brand it as a Red Bull engine and they're, they're not going to sell off the naming rights like they did a couple of years ago with their Renault customer units that were branded as a Tag Heuer, I, th- I think it's interesting because I think, um, number one, I think by acquiring this IP, I think this uh, really, you know, unless something drastic happens and let's hope that, that it doesn't, that this really signals that uh, a long-term commitment to, to, to Formula One. And I think that, uh, you know, by, you know, retaining the naming rights and branding it as a Red Bull engine, I think is very, very interesting because it kind of makes me wonder if, depending how successful they are at at building their own engines, developing them, is the possibility of Red Bull customer engines. You know, could could we possibly see, you know, say a Williams Red Bull? You know, it, it, it it's sort of a fascinating one, and I, I think that it's a really really exciting development for just those couple of reasons alone. I comp- you know what? I feel like I, I completely agree with you a, a lot, but you made a fantastic <laughs> point, right? Like my my sense is that. Red Bull will have every financial motivation to acquire a customer team, right? Like that's that's pure cash that you can add to your bottom line. And I look at Williams as a, a great example of a team and they've already been rumored to be sniffing around or perhaps the other way with the Renault power unit like that that would be a potentially a great relationship mm-hmm. they're three four hours apart by by drive they're they're within the same vicinity they share a, a lot of common linkages in terms of suppliers and things like that I think that's a great example and I think and this is being too speculative but the other possibility too is if I'm Red Bull um, maybe I can do a prototype one-off limited road car as well as, a, as an additional marketing vehicle if I'm going that far and I'm developing this complete package, how much of that can I take and package into um, a potential road car? So I think there's all sorts of exciting things that they can do. And I also just think that from a confidence perspective, if I'm Christian Horner or any member of the leadership team in, in that organization, the extra chip I carry on my shoulder now, knowing that I am no longer dependent on one of our competitors to supply my engines, I, I think that's a, a pretty powerful um I think a pretty powerful status symbol for that team, to be totally honest. You know, the the, the cheeky part of me is uh, wondering if we could ever see something like a, an Alpine Red Bull and just the, the irony in that. <laughs> just, I, I, I could just uh, hear the, the silent scream coming from, from uh, Surreal Abitable, just even at the thoughts or the mention of that. But uh, yeah, very, very uh, exciting stuff. And so I, I, wa- I want to stick with Red Bull now. And I, I just want to go to the proof that uh, that if, if there was any doubt that Christian Horner was a fan and a listener of the show, 
and, and have we ever had any questions about that? I think it's completely <laughs> been put to, 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 to rest because he said this week, and this is something we talked about last week. So obviously he, he got, he got it for us, you know, <laughs> pumping up our own tires here, of course, and uh, being, uh, you know, quite silly. But anyhow, uh, Christian says that he believes that uh, Mercedes will uh, make a, a, sorry, I was going to say Yas Verstappen, Max Verstappen their first choice if Lewis Hamilton decides to quit after the end of this year. And I, I think that uh, it, it just has to be that that one logical statement and or, or a conclusion that you have to draw. Anyways, Horner had to say the following, quote, all drivers have safeguards within performance, and the reality is that there has always been. There's an elephant of performance related to Max's contract. I'm not going to go into what it is. It doesn't relate to the power unit in any way. It's just a binary performance, a, a certain measurement in time. As with all those things, though, to force a driver that doesn't want to be there, it's more about relationships than contracts. You only put a contract out of the drawer we've got a problem in my experience the relationship with max is very strong he believes in the project he believes in what we're doing he sees the investment that red bull is making very much with the recent commitment on the powertrain he believes that with uh, in the people within the team working within the team i'm confident that we don't need to refer to any contractual clauses i think that he will ultimately be down to us to deliver a competitive car that's what he wants that was what we want he needs that we need that so in that respect we're both in an identical situation end quote so I mean, he does go on to to talk more about uh, different things, you know, different scenarios. If uh, if uh, Lewis decides to stop after this year, one of them is uh, George Russell, and uh, you know, a lot of these different scenarios that uh, that that we've talked about. But I, you know, I, I don't find it, you know, really a surprising conclusion. I just find it a little bit interesting at this point in time that he would actually throw that out there in, in the public realm. You know, the the other wrinkle here is what you and I talked about last week where, you know, given current conditions, um, obviously this is logical, but if we see a driver salary cap in 2023, this may not even be a discussion point anymore because Mm -hmm. as much as Mercedes may want him and as much as he may want to go to Mercedes, there's this potential situation where Red Bull could just offer him more money based on the way that they're distributing the revenue of their salary cap, right? Like if if I'm Mercedes and I'm in a position where I have one driver at 10 million and the cap's 30, I've only got an additional $20 million that I could potentially offer to a Max Verstappen. Likewise, if if I'm Red Bull, I could go really cheap and bring in an academy driver as my second driver and in theory pay Max $29 million. So I think this is all very interesting, but I think the salary cap is going to have a very significant impact on how drivers are dispersed around the sport. And you know, if I'm if I'm Mercedes, you know what? Yeah, that would be great. Even if I have a clean slate and I can pick two drivers. I could bring Max in and give him 29 and potentially theoretically Max or a match potentially what Red Bull is offering, but I've then only got a million dollars for my second driver, and I don't know who I'm going to get for a million dollars, and then all of a sudden, I've got one driver that could chase the driver's title, but do I have enough to chase a constructor's title? So all of a sudden, there's all of these new equations that come into the picture when you're talking about the dynamics associated with a driver salary cap. Mm -hmm. And just a couple of things that I learned this week as well that I, I wasn't kind of briefed on when we're talking about the salary cap most recently, it looks like the consideration is that teams could actually exceed the cap. So if I'm Mercedes and I had theoretically George Russell on the books for $8 million because he's not bringing any sponsorship and I wanted to pay max 30 million, I could. I just have to be able to cut that 
excess that you know the 30 that whatever it is over the cap i just have to cut that out of other parts of our capped operation Mm. so i would have to go to what we're investing in the car whether it's 135 45 55 65 depending on the season i would just have to remove it from the development money so you know if i've got 165 to spend on my car but i spend 10 million over on the driver's salary cap i have to go and cut 10 million dollars off of car development costs so it's just there's going to be all kinds of interesting new dynamics and for our north american listeners i think this is probably a conversation you're used to hearing if you follow major league soccer if you follow major well probably not major league baseball because there's no cap but the nfl the nba the nhl Salary cap discussion is a big part of any conversation around yep. building a team. And now it's going to inject itself into the conversation about Formula One as well. The The other thing I'll add too is if I'm the drivers here, if I'm going to tolerate and accept a driver salary cap, I'm going to demand a salary floor because the reality is as the, as the proposed salary cap is, is uh, recommended today, Teams literally don't actually have to spend anything on their drivers. If you have two paid drivers, you could literally pay zero in salary cap for your drivers. So if I'm the drivers like, hey, you know, we'll sign up for this salary cap, but we need a salary floor. Every team has to spend a minimum of five or 10 million on their drivers. Yeah. Some interesting dynamics. But yeah, same as you. I was very surprised that he voiced these considerations out loud. I don't know what the end game was. And, you know, Christian Horner is an incredibly smart guy. I don't feel he puts these things out into the public realm unless there's a a knock-on effect or something that he's trying to get out of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that uh, whatever he does, whatever he says is very calculated and it's a a sort of measured response. So the reason why he's bringing it up and, you know, he sounds sort of sounds very sort of casual about it. He doesn't seem very worried about it, but you really, I I think, raised an interesting issue there just in the whole salary cap thing for for the drivers. And the one thing that sort of like popped into my mind when you were just saying, okay, well, if we exceed the $30 million, maybe I just cut the cap or or cut spending in other the, the, the capped areas. And the one thing that sort of popped into my mind that uh, if, and I don't know how complicated they want to go with this, uh, should this actually come into effect, is what about the, uh, the, the the prospect of having like a luxury tax? You know, you have uh, two drivers on yeah. the books, uh, say you've got, uh, say you got Lewis on the books for for 30 and you got Valtteri on the books uh, for for 10, right? So what, what do you do with that uh, that $10 million or pounds or euros or whatever it is over the cap? Does that go into like a, a, a luxury tax and then you split that up uh, among the lower point score? teams so you know like your alphas your williams is your hasses of the world that are not bringing in very much I points because of the constructors championship maybe they're getting it uh, somewhere else i mean it, it, but i mean the other thing is too you know to add another twist to the twists and the you know, the turns that we've been uh, discussing is we don't know what's going to happen in 2022 i mean these new cars yeah. could be completely thrown up and uh, you know it could just change everything we could have parity you know a new mercedes uh, could come and dominate the sport it really really is the great unknown. And I think that's, uh, as much as I'm looking forward to this year, I'm really looking forward to next year as well. And, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, one of the things that I keep thinking about with that, that the whole possibility, you know, the, the idea of Max Verstappen being lured away from Red Bull to go to Mercedes is the fact that, you know, maybe at some point it, it's not about money. Maybe it's him looking, okay, well, I'm a young guy. I'm going to a team that's demonstrated dominance in the sport since 2014. And hey, you know, if, if I can stay there and uh, I can play my cards right, you know, maybe seven, eight years down the road, we're talking about Max, uh, you know, becoming the next GOAT, right? 
So I, th- yeah, I think 100%, there's, there, 100%. there's so many different things uh, to, to, to think about here and so many things to, to watch, not just over the course of this season. Of course, everybody's going to be watching uh, Lewis to see what, uh, what what he's going to decide to, to do at the end of the year. If this one year is just sort of contract he has is just sort of a bridge into a longer term thing. Or, you know, I, I think it was very interesting, the comments that his dad, Anthony, had to say a, a week ago that it wasn't about the money. And uh, he kind of uh, made it kind of sound like that uh, Lewis is almost getting to the point where, you know, guys, I've, I've, I think I'm, I'm good. I think I've achieved everything I want to in Formula One and I'm ready to move on. It was the kind of that vibe that we got from from his dad. So, you know, it is certainly going to be uh, a, a massive story to watch all year long. You made a really, really, really great point right there. And I, I just want to kind of expand on that real quick, which is, you know what, if I'm Max and I can take 20 million to go to Mercedes and almost certainly win a title versus taking 30 million and staying at Red Bull where I'll be competitive, but I'm not going to win a title. It's incredibly short-term thinking to take that upfront cash. Cause to your point, like your legacy is infinitely more valuable, both in terms of the history of the sport and your own marketing potential. Because mm-hmm. if you go to Mercedes and you win, even if you're taking less salary from Mercedes, the amount of money that you're going to be able to cash in on through marketing endorsements is going to be exponentially higher. The other point that you touched on, which I thought was incredibly intriguing and I'd never thought of it, is that that concept of a luxury tax. So in the NBA, for example, and I hate keep going back to this comparison, but the NBA is the, the absolute benchmark for a league that operates its salary cap well. The sport has a salary cap. If you spend in excess of the salary cap, you go into the the lux or you go into um, the luxury tax. And what that means is, for every dollar that you spend over the salary cap, you have to give a dollar back to the league. And what the league does is, it takes that money and it distributes it amongst all the other teams that aren't a luxury tax team. So in this case, imagine a scenario where you're Mercedes and like, hey, you know what? We're gonna pay. We're gonna pay Lewis fifty million dollars. He's thirty-seven years old. He's won nine. He's won nine titles. We're gonna pay him fifty million. We're going to pay George Russell 10. So we're 30 million over the cap. Totally cool. Mercedes, I need you to take a dollar for every dollar that you're over the cap. Give it back to the sport. We'll distribute amongst all the other teams that aren't in the tax and they can take that money and spend it on the development of their car. So mm-hmm. instead of having a cap of 165, maybe each individual team is going to have $170 million. So I think there's some really, really, really cool stuff there that promotes parity, discourages potentially overspending, but allows teams to reward drivers that deserve it um, without introducing gimmicky um, gimmicky reverse grids and things like that. Like there's so many cool things that they could do and they could borrow from other sports. I'm just salivating at the prospect that uh, potentially in this scenario, should it ever come into effect, that uh, Ferrari could potentially receive you know, a Mercedes dollars, Mercedes bucks that goes into like a luxury tax and that gets funneled and redistributed through the through Formula One into into oh, Ferrari man, bank accounts. Great. Isn't that awesome? Anyway, so we still have a couple more uh, Red Bull things to talk about and we'll do that uh, just on the flip side here. We're going to just take another quick break and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. So don't go away. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And of course, a big welcome and a hello to everybody listening and downloading the podcast and to all of you watching on YouTube. Great to have you all along with us again this week. And Mark, just sticking with the Red Bull theme that uh, we've been uh, talking and tossing around here for the, uh, quite a little while here. The last one that uh, I wanted to to touch on, and again, uh, we're going back uh, to uh, my, my man, Christian Horner here. The uh, and again, uh, we were, this is a very interesting uh, comment. Uh, he was just uh, talking, uh, or he, he was commenting about uh, the the whole new Verstappen 
and uh, Perez lineup uh, that we're going to see uh, this year. And uh, he's really expecting them to replicate, and replicate is the word that he used, to uh, the, the success that they had uh, for the couple of years when uh, Max was partnered up uh, with uh, Danny Ricardo before he left at the end of uh, 2018. So it, uh, I, I think it, it does really give them a one-two punch that they've really been missing the past uh, two years. I mean, you have to, if you're going to invest money in a driver academy and you're going to have a junior team like they have a Toro Rosso slash AlphaTauri, of course, it makes sense to try and bring up uh, your drivers uh, through the system. I still find it fascinating that uh, they had this issue where a lot of their younger drivers didn't have enough points uh, for their for their super license and stuff like that. And it kind of left a bit of vacuum in the, uh, in the system that they had and meant a return of Danny Kvyat and then the whole, you know, the whole revolving door situation with Pierre Gatt. Leslie and Alex Albon. And, you know, I, I don't really see what, well, I mean, I think it was a, a very good pickup to, to make to get uh, Sergio Perez to go there. Just the fact, I mean, Sergio's a proven quantity in Formula One. He's a good driver. He's got uh, loads of uh, experience in Formula One. And I think that's, uh, that's what they've really missed. I mean, it's, it's, it's been all shake and no bake, if you want to use the, the, the Ricky Bobby uh, you know, metaphor here or the comparison. And I think that uh, by, by having, uh, you know, a second proven driver in the team, and, you know, I, I'm not going to disrespect or say anything bad about uh, Pierre Gasly or Al- Alex Albon. I think uh, we, we've seen this year that uh, with, with Gasly going back to, to, to um, Alpha Tauri that, you know, he's still continuing to, 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 to develop. I mean, unfortunately for Alex, he's going to be in a reserve driver role. He's not going to be in a race seat. So, you know, he might sort of stagnate a little bit. But however, you know, you are going to get that one-two punch. Now, he, we, we all know how much of a rock star Mac is, uh, Max is. And now bringing in, uh, you know, this this proven journeyman in the in, in the form of Sergio Perez, I think uh, really brings, I don't want to say a lethal combo, because I think it really comes down to... Um, you know what, what you know how good the car is going to be this year but i think that it's really going to be more of a situation where we're we're going to see those two red bull cars challenging for more points higher up in the grid we're not going to see like max like second or third and i don't expect to see checo perez so you know, sort of scrapping it out for the dregs of the points paying positions you know i i expect to see him up there in the thick of it too and of course the big question is how's he going to compare with his teammate in max verstappen that's so it uh you know it's it, it gives them what they need i think is basically what i'm trying to get at yeah and i think it takes some of the pressure and some of the noise away from the team too right i i think right from the beginning of the season the the amount of media and press that surrounded that team regarding alexander albon's presence was was problematic and, and i think it ultimately became it became a distraction and it became worse mid-season when Gasly began to perform at an extremely high level and ultimately won a race in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that's that's a good news story. And again, it's not a shot at Albon. I think he's a great kid. I think he was put into a really challenging team and in a car that wasn't necessarily designed for him um, in a sport where he didn't have a ton of experience at the premier level. I think you're right. I think I think this is going to be a good pairing. And, you know, I, I do reflect back on the last couple of seasons where you had a Ricardo and you had Verstappen in those cars. And both seasons, 2017, 2018, they finished third in the championship uh, as a team. They weren't close, to be totally honest. Ferrari was a distant, distant second. Um, 
But ultimately, they, they did win races. And, you know, if you look back at 2018, Ricardo picked up a couple of race wins. Max picked up a couple of race wins. It wasn't enough to put them into contention for second and certainly not enough to put them into contention for the championship. I think I think in 2018, Mercedes scored like 650 points to 420 or something like that. So they weren't close. They weren't close in 2017 either. But I think the big difference this year, and, and I think this is where Horner and the rest of that, the leadership team at Red Bull get excited is Ferrari's not going to play into the equation. We know that. They know that. Everybody in the sport knows that. So this is really the first chance in the turbo hybrid era where Red Bull has a legit chance to put a scare into into Mercedes. And I think in 1718, Daniel was at a point in his career that with the right car, he could have contended. Max was in a position in his career with the right car, he could contend. I think that Red Bull is very excited about the package that they're bringing. I think they're very excited about the changes that they've made to that power unit in the offseason. But I think they're ecstatic about the fact that they don't have to compete with Ferrari for second. And that really, they're potentially chasing a championship, whether it's a driver or a constructor's title. And I think a big part of the calculus in signing Sergio Perez was the fact that we have this window we know that Ferrari is going to return to a really strong state at some point, probably 2022, but 2021 gives us a window and we can't afford to let this window pass by while Alex Albon is still learning to drive this car. So I, I think the calculus was really that like, hey, we have a one-year window to take a legit run at this. We've got our own power unit. We've got the right driver pairing. We think we can do this. Makes total sense. So I think for them, Anything but a close second will be a failure. If they finish third, it's a disaster. If they finish 150 points behind Mercedes, but they still finish second, it's a disaster. They need to be very, very, very close for the calculus that they arrived at in the offseason to be proven accurate. So that's what I'm really excited to see is how close can they get to Mercedes this year? And maybe it's close. Maybe it's a distant second. But if it is a distant second, I think that's a complete failure for that team. Yeah, you know, and uh, what we've seen uh, Red Bull doing over the past uh, weeks and months in this offseason and uh, even going back to last year, the fact that uh, Honda announced that they were pulling out, but they're basically throwing everything, including the kitchen sink, into the development, into this engine for this year. Really, like you say, it really gives them this this narrow opportunity because instead of uh, you know chasing two moving targets in Ferrari and Mercedes, now they're just chasing the one. They they can focus on uh, Mercedes, but the big key is to it. I'm I'm going to go back and uh, and 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 refer to what uh, Christian Horner said about a year ago, saying, well, uh, prior to the whole COVID thing kind of kicked off, but he said going into the season, we're the most prepared that we've been in you know coming into a season in the turbo hybrid era. But still, I know the pandemic messed up a lot of things, but but still, if it wasn't for those, um, well, let, let's be honest, if it wasn't for those tire-related disasters at Silverstone for those couple of races, they wouldn't have won that race either. I mean, they, they got off to a very, very yep. slow start. I mean, if, uh, you know, they've, they've got a great car, but, you know, they don't get this thing dialed in into race five or race six, it, what's the point? You know, Mercedes is already going to be a dot down the road, and, you know, they, they are not going to, to, to hemorrhage points and bleed points uh, throughout the season. They might have a bad weekend. I mean, we've seen it happen over the years uh, where, you know, 
Rosberg and Hamilton took each other out in, uh, in in Spain that one year. We had the double DNF in in Austria that one year. These things happen. These things are it, it's motor racing. It's it's going to happen at some point. But to see Mercedes drop a bunch of points consistently, race after race after race. It's not going to happen. I mean, they are just literally bulletproof. And like I've said almost for years that until it's proven to be a repetitive, like a consistent thing that I'm not going to say that uh, I'm I'm not going to bet against them because they're just uh, too good. So, I mean, it really, the pressure is on Red Bull. They've got everything. They've done so much to, to line up things, put the odds, I wouldn't say in their favor, but to position themselves very well, to really build a solid foundation to go or come into 2021 but that's one part of it. Uh, you know, get, getting the foundation and doing all the background work is one thing. Now they have to execute. They have to go out there. They have to win races. They have to score points. They have to go out there and to, to contend. And if they're still fiddling about, you know, two, three, four, five races into the season, it may be too late. A couple of things I, I do want to add because you're right. Like, I, I think it's clear that if Red Bull wants to have any shot at competitiveness in the constructors title this year, they have to have a great start. And if you look back to Austria last year where they had a 13th place and a retirement, like they, they hemorrhaged points right from the get go. But if you look, if you look at Max's season, the guy has 10 podiums and two race wins. He has five retirements due to mechanical errors. Mm-hmm. So if you if you can convert even half of those retirements into points finishes, and then you have anybody but Alexander Elbon in that other race seat, you know what? Maybe you can pick up a hundred extra points. Like I, I think they left an awful lot of points on the table. Yeah. But I yeah. think to your point that the challenge is going to be. Mercedes, and we saw mistakes last year, for sure. We saw some pretty high-profile mistakes in Bahrain and the Sahir Grand Prix. But ultimately, over the course of a season, they don't make enough mistakes that they're going to leave many points for you. And it's funny because I had some conversations with Red Bull fans on Twitter recently, and they keep pointing to that the, the season finale in Abu Dhabi, and Max won, and he he took pole, and blah, 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 blah. But the reality is, Toto and Mercedes came, back, came out after that race and said, hey, just as a heads up, we turned our engines down down to the to to what we think is probably a loss of a tenth of a second per lap versus what we could have achieved if we turn up the engines and then if you start doing the math like oh yeah if their engines were at full power they would have kicked the crap out of the red bulls all weekend long so mm-hmm. even even that kind of glorious conclusion to the season for red bull is kind of tainted by the fact that mercedes had knowingly turned down their engines just because they wanted to buy some longevity because they'd already tied up the constructors title and even with the engines turned down they still finished second and third so i i think it's going to be a much more competitive season i just like i i look back at last season and if you look at the stacked results it was Max securing one, two, three, one, two, three retirement, one, two, three, one, two, three retirement. And it was Albon contributing nothing like mm-hmm. Albon had some, re- didn't have the same reliability issues that, that his teammate did. But again, the reliability issues were mechanical, not driver error anyway. So yeah, I think that's all I've got to say about this one. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, why don't we just uh, take uh, one final break here on the show, Mark, and then we're going to come back. And I want to talk uh, briefly about uh, Mercedes and what uh, they're thinking about going into next year for 2022. And we'll do that uh, right after the break. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment.
All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. It's always up to speed with Formula One. And Mark, there was an interesting quote uh, that was out uh, this week uh, from uh, Mercedes technical director, James Allison, who said that, uh, well, the first thing is he said the, the new regulations that are coming into effect for next year, which was supposed to be this year before the pandemic and all that stuff. He's called them a, a complete revolution. And uh, it's a very interesting quote. Uh, this is on the, uh, the, the Mercedes official website. And uh, James had the following to say, uh, the season hasn't even begun yet. No car is even launched. No one has turned a wheel. And yet we're already starting to think very seriously about 2022. Next year brings a complete revolution in the technical regulations of the car. The sort of things we have seen uh, for racing uh, for the last few seasons will be dead and gone at the end of this year, replaced instead by a new generation of car, which has a completely different technical objective to try and make the racing closer by making the lead car damage the performance of the trailing car less. The change is so large and the car is so different that we will have to spend a good a large part of our technical resource during 2021 in order to make sure we are ready with a good car that can see us in decent shape for the years that follow in 2022 and beyond, end quotes. You know, I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but uh, when, when I saw that, I thought to, to myself, um, well, a couple of things. Of course, they need to be focusing on that. But number two is a is this not an article that's been like regurgitated and reposted from 2021 that this did not or sorry, from 2020, this did not seem like a very contemporary quote from Mr. Allison. No, not at all. I do appreciate. And and I think it's, it's probably a smart move to kind of when you're being interviewed and you're asked about the expectation of your cars, I, I think the right thing is to hedge bets and to downplay your expectations. And I think sometimes it's a headline grabber that, Hey, team, Principle X says low expectations or we're, we're not fully optimized or whatever the case would be. But I think it's the smart move. And I think it's, it's dangerous to over predict or aggressively predict what you expect from your power unit. And you mm-hmm. see this in the business world all the time where a CFO or a CEO is being organized. And it's actually in their interest sometimes to downplay the expectations of analysts because what they don't want to see is this short-term push where a CEO says something really optimistic. It drives off the stock. People get excited and then they don't achieve those results. And then the analysts in the market go the complete opposite direction. So it kind of makes sense to me, but yeah, the same thing, like I feel like I could have read this same article 12 months ago. And a lot of it seems, and in Canada, we have this phrase called hockey talk, which is, hey, a hockey player or hockey executive gives the most generic, (laughs) um, kind of simulated, kind of pre-formatted quotes imaginable. And this was a a little bit of this, but I certainly appreciate uh, appreciate where they're, they're coming from on this one. Yeah, the, the sort of a sticking with this one uh, to a certain degree, but uh, it, it's related. Anyways, uh, James Key, who is the the technical uh, director to McLaren, uh, he was uh, just talking about uh, the the new uh, Mercedes power that they have, and and the new car, the MCL thirty five, just looks uh, absolutely gorgeous. Anyways, uh, he he was just talking because of course they switched from Renault now to uh, Mercedes uh, for this year. And he was saying that uh, Mercedes used to be the benchmark in Formula One, but uh, he says now there, there's actually very little separating the, the, the different engines. Obviously, he's excluded uh, Ferrari from this uh, discussion. <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, the, the one thing that, that uh, he was saying that, they're, you know, all joking aside, there really isn't uh, that much difference uh, between the four different uh, engine manufacturers at the time. And he says it's really good to uh, to work with uh, Mercedes, but he's also feeling that the, the, the new car, that the, or sorry, the new engine that they have in the car is not fully optimal. Uh, you know, uh, despite uh, redesigning the car. So 
It's going to be interesting. I mean, it is sort of an in-between year. I mean, uh, they, they had to really do a lot of work modifying the chassis. But uh, I am really intrigued to see how they are going to succeed or maybe not succeed with the with, with the new Mercedes uh, power in it. I mean, you just have to think the redesigned McLaren, the team that they have there now, the people working behind the scenes designing and building these cars – Coupled with the Mercedes engine, you have to think that the, the fact that you know this car was basically designed for a Renault power unit, despite the modification, still isn't you know the perfect match with the the, the Mercedes. I still have to think that uh, just on paper that it it seems like a good match to me, you know. And, and it's more share. sorry, I was going to say more than just the historical tie up between the Mercedes and McLaren, of course. Totally. Let me share another example where a team with relatively short notice shoved a Mercedes power unit into a car that was designed for something completely different. And if you flash back to the end of 2009, Honda had a work, actually not even 2009, 2008, Honda had their own works team. And at the very last second during the winter, they backed out of the sport. Ross Braun and his consortium stepped up and they bought the car, but they didn't have a power unit. They had a Honda car designed for a Honda power unit. They went and knocked on the door of Mercedes. Mercedes cut them a sweet deal to get them a power unit in time. They wedged that power unit into a back of a car that had no business carrying a Mercedes power unit. And they drove it to a constructor's title and a driver's title. So there's precedence for teams doing amazing things. I think what's really interesting about this scenario is and for those of you at home that aren't aware the the regulations pretty much froze core car development going into 2021 right like they they froze it for development costs they froze it because of everything associated with the pandemic but mclaren were given a bunch of leeway to modify parts of the car that needed to be modified to accommodate the power unit so anything that didn't have to be changed they weren't allowed to touch the fia wouldn't let them touch it formula one wouldn't let them touch it they were only allowed to change things that were required to be changed to accommodate the new power unit which actually as it turns out turned out to be a ton of stuff including the wheelbase of the car but incredibly excited the other thing i'll add too and i know we were going to talk about this up front is did you get a chance to watch any of the the mclaren uh f1 car reveal earlier this week i think it was on monday I did. I watched the. Um, I, I went back and watched the YouTube uh, stream that they had, and I, I. I. I have to admit, I really enjoyed the rap. Did you see the rap that Lando and and, and Danny Rick did? Oh. That, that was that was. So that that's what I was trying to get to. I was trying to get to that. You know, it, one. I think it's. I think the way they did it was really good because I think oftentimes these F1 car reveals, they're on a glitzy stage. They bring the drivers out. There's some photo ops. The team principal takes some questions. That's it. But I I think what's really cool now is especially with all these digital streaming platforms, um, the teams have the opportunity to really showcase themselves. Like if I can have a 30 minute or a 60 minute segment, I get the drivers out. We do some Q&A. We do some engagement with the drivers. We talk about the development of the car. We roll the car out. I think... If I was McLaren in hindsight, I might have done this a little bit differently. One, I would have had the car physically present because as it turned out, the car wasn't actually there on the day that this show was broadcast. It was actually at Silverstone doing a shakedown. Mm -hmm. So the footage of the car was actually shot the day before. So it wasn't actually present for the reveal. And I probably would have cut that entire musical segment. I would have preferred to see, you know, take us into the factory, introduce us to some of your engineers, your aerodynamicists, your 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 designers, like like give us a feel of the people that are working on this car. I would rather have seen that 
than uh, than Daniel Ricardo and Lando Norris awkwardly walking around a music studio. I would have preferred to see that, but I'll be interested to see what the other teams whip up. But I like the concept of them having this 30 or 60 minute segment where they can talk about the car, you know, give the driver some FaceTime, do some fan engagement. I thought all of that was very cool. Yeah, I, I'm just disappointed that you didn't, uh, you you weren't just gushing with good things to to say about uh, Danny Ricardo being a lyrical gangster. You know, I'm just, uh, I, I'm, I'm the shocked. biggest rap fan, and I did not enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was a bit painful, <laughs> but it, it, yeah, it will be interesting too. I mean, uh, like like you say, I mean, we, we are used to like these sort of glitzy, really sort of um, you know fancy car releases, and the the thing that I liked about the the McLaren, like the the way that they did it, is it 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 feels. I feel more immersed in it, you know, like when we see like these big reveals, wherever they, they often have like the, the feel that it's just for a very select few, you know, it's a select media go there and stuff like that. Exactly. But, but this, this, you know, you know, cringeworthy moments, uh, notwithstanding to me, I felt, uh, I, like, I, I actually enjoyed it. I felt, uh, it, it worked pretty good, uh, considering the, you know, the parameters that they had to work in could have been better, of course, but, uh, you know, it just, uh, in, in past years, like whenever you see like the, 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 the launches it'd be just like oh yeah go to like uh you know your your website of choice go like the pictures go on instagram go on to twitter whatever what, you know whatever your poison is and kind of enjoy it that way it's just like i i, w- I would say you know as, you know as painful as maybe some of those moments were i find it less painful than watching through some gala event that you know you know the likes of you and i are never going to get invited to anyways but maybe I'm and, just and a lot of a lot of younger fans may thoroughly have enjoyed it, right? Like we may not actually have been the target audience for that segment of the show. Mm -hmm. The other thing, and I'll just add one more piece to this is the other piece of that I'll credit formula one for in Liberty and McLaren was it live streamed everywhere. You could watch it on Twitter. You could watch it on Facebook. Like it was like they were pushing it out. Like you couldn't miss it. I thought that was very cool just in terms of making it super accessible to, to the fans. And I loved as well, the fact that that wall. So when they were interviewing Daniel and Lando, when they had them on the stage and they were asking some questions, that wall of fans behind, it was all super young fans. They all had their kind of their orange McLaren caps on. It was, it would, that was very, very, very cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, you know, and you know, we, we've all become very, uh, you know, adept at using, you know, various uh, platforms over the past year, like Zoom and Teams and GoTo meetings. And, uh, you know, just uh, <laughs> pick your choice, right? So, I, I mean, it, it, it is a very, I, I think it's, it's interactive in a different way. I mean, you, you know, for, for the people that were maybe not on the wall, sure, you're not there in the thing, but you're still part of the event. You're still, you're still taking part in it. And I, I think that's a cool way that, uh, you know, that uh, perhaps in the in the future, you don't physically have to go to one of these things to to actually be there and enjoy it. And, and I think that's that that's what made it a little bit more relatable and a little bit uh, more fun. But Mark, uh, talking to now about uh, some of the different uh, news uh, that that's out there, Monaco, they're actually going to start installing the fixtures and everything for their the Formula E, the historic races and the Formula One Grand Prix that's uh, going to take place in April and May, just a couple of months from now. I think it's really interesting because the automobile Club de Monaco said uh, just, well, I guess it's about a month ago now, they had absolutely no plans to cancel the events this year. In, and that was uh, basically into what they were saying was that they were responding to a lot of speculation that was floating around there in the, uh, you know, in the, in, in the atmosphere. Right. And 
said that they were absolutely committed to uh, you know, uh, holding the F1, the historic Grand Prix, and the Formula E races over that one-month uh, uh, period. And uh, so uh, on Wednesday of this week, the local government said that uh, the construction of the circuit is going to start Monday next week. And uh, that's going to include all the usual things like inst- uh, repainting the track markings, the uh, the, the various infrastructure, the, the, the barriers, traffic restrictions, and, uh, and all those uh, things there. So it's uh, going to run for seven weeks. Uh, so, I mean, it's not a big place to, 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 to begin with, uh, you know, uh, Monte Carlo. So it's going to be quite an inconvenience uh, for, for the people there. So, and it's, it's interesting too. I mean, it's, it's back on the calendar. It was scrubbed uh, last year because of COVID. And it was the first time since 1954 that we did not see the Monaco Grand Prix. And, you know, I, I have to admit it's, it's not my favorite track on the calendar, but it, it does kind of add something to the year. So, uh, you know, from, from that point, you know, alone in the historical part, I'm looking forward to seeing it come back for this year. Yeah. I still don't know necessarily how they're going to make this work logistically. April 23rd to April 25th, which I think when the race runs that story, May 20th, 20th to 23rd is it's so close. And I, and again, maybe there's some real confidence in the health authorities in in that part of Europe that we're going to be in a good place. But even if you don't sell tickets and you don't bring people to the track, you're talking about a circuit that runs through a dense city core. It's it's going to be impossible because you're running feet away from apartment buildings and hotels and yeah. swimming pools. Like It's going to be very difficult to create separation between the Formula One bubble and the city and the spectators and the media. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Um, that said, I, I know there are a couple of websites that are actively selling ticket packages for that weekend. And presumably there's some sort of COVID guarantee or some sort of COVID refund policy associated with that. But yeah, I, I'm I'm really, really curious because, you know, going back two months ago, I was very confident that this race wasn't going to happen. I'm still confident that Canada's probably not going to happen. I don't think the health authorities here are going to allow that to happen for a second, or if they do, because at least in Montreal, the racetrack is moderately separated from the city core, mm-hmm. and it's effectively on a man-made island, um, separated from the downtown component of that city. Um, I, I, I'm surprised this one's happening. Again, I'm I'm happy because it brings back a sense of normalcy. I don't love the racing here, but I like to see the the end result. But I think too often the end result is dictated by qualifying anyway. So yeah, and who gets so into we'll the, see yeah. we'll see yeah, and, and and also not only qualifying but who makes it into the first corner and doesn't uh, stuff exactly. it into the barrier. It, it it doesn't always lead to the the, the most exciting racing. But you know, I, I did think it was interesting too, just in the, the, the different articles and stories out there regarding this race said this week that, you know, they, they talk about different things like building the infrastructure, painting the track and, you know, closing off all the, 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 the different streets and restricting the access and stuff like that. Not one of them has said anything about like uh, putting up grandstands. And I don't know if that was intentional, you know, intentionally left out because, you know, they don't want to alarm people that that, oh yeah, well, you know, we still have a pandemic raging out here and people are going to go to a Formula One race or, you know, they're not going to be any grandstands there at all. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next uh, several weeks as they, uh, they they put everything up there. Now, sticking on this uh, theme of uh, preparing for a Grand Prix, so um, the the race that we were going to see originally to start uh, the, the season, the traditional uh, season kickoff in uh, Australia and Melbourne at Albert Park, uh, that's uh, been uh, you know, pushed back until uh, November. 
they've actually uh, released uh, some plans to just tweak the layout uh, this year. That's going to change uh, the, the the track with the uh, the aim to uh, try and uh, you know promote a little bit uh, more passing. I mean, you can go and take a look at uh, some of the different things that uh, different track layouts there. That uh, you know, it's uh, you know. It's not a bad track, but the one issue is there aren't really lots of, uh, you know, opportunities uh, to overtake there. So I think that they can do that and they can uh, stimulate some, some more passing zones and uh, some more overtaking. I think that would be a good thing. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And again, I don't have anything else to add on Australia. No, <laughs> no value to add. No, I, I just, uh, you know, I, you know, the, the one thing that sort of always stands out in my mind about Australia, and th- this is a funny one. I'm going to go back to the first race of uh, 2014 when we first saw the turbo hybrid air, uh, you know, engines introduced and just uh, sitting down, you know, watching the qualifying everything over the course of the weekend is, yeah, the cars sound uh, quieter, but then actually sitting there for and watching like the, uh, you know, I mean, Australia is one of the races that we can basically watch live here on the West Coast of North America with the, you know, because of the 18, 19 hour time difference or whatever it is and i was just uh thinking because remembering like the very first race that i went to at uh, the nurburgring way back when and just how painful it was when all the cars came down and passed us and i didn't have my uh my my earplugs in and just uh i, I just remember them all kind of like racing into the first corner and on the tv i was just like huh that sure sounds quiet. And then, you know, several races later that year, we were in Barcelona to watch uh, the 2014 Spanish Grand Prix. And, uh, you know, I had my, my little foamy earplugs and I don't think I put them in the entire weekend. So anyways, it's just one of those weird things that uh, I remember. And uh, just uh, while we wrap it up here, I, I think this is kind of an interesting one. And this is one that uh, you sent me one uh, or sent me earlier today. So apparently Haas and Williams have been linked to a, a move to become uh, sponsored by BWT, who have been uh, were bumped from uh, Aston Martin. Uh, of course, they've uh, been uh, rebranded and now Cognizant uh, or Aston Martin F1 or whatever it is. And uh, of course, they uh, sponsored uh, Racing Point uh, for the past uh, couple of years. So perhaps the pink livery is not going to completely disappear from the Formula One grid. Yeah, not at all. I I think there was a lot of speculation earlier this week that both Haas and uh, our our friends at Williams were in deep negotiations to bring on the livery and bring them on as a core sponsor. I I think it's been reported probably as about two hours ago that the Haas deal isn't happening, but that the Williams deal is imminent. And one of the things that I think a lot of kind of viewers and fans picked up on today was... While Williams has been at Silverstone this week doing a shakedown of the 2021 car, they've been doing it with a generic Navy livery and all of the track suits and the merch that the team have been wearing are generic Navy Williams merch. And for those of you that don't remember, Mercedes wore from 2014 until 2018. They were wearing that beautiful martini livery, the white, yeah. the blue, the red, that beautiful, beautiful livery. Um, when they went into the the 2014 preseason shakedown at Silverstone, they actually hadn't finalized the deal with Martini at that point. So they were rocking the exact same generic team merch and navy blue livery on their cars then as they did this weekend. So it's widely, widely expected that Williams in the next four to five business days will announce that BWT is going to be their core sponsor and some variation of the pink livery will return, which I think is a great thing because I love it. I just know for the next 18 races, I'll be confused as hell every time I see a pink (laughs) car at the back of the pack as I get frustrated that Force India, Force India, Racing racing Point, Aston Martin aren't, aren't performing to the level that I would expect. It's going to 
create a lot of confusion for me, but I'd love to see a pink car. And I think it'll be a really great tie up for Williams because this is a team that's obviously in need of a fairly significant cash injection. By all accounts, BWT is a world-class sponsor. Um, they're a great organization. It's understood that Total Wolf has a stake in that company as well. Oh, okay. I think it would be a really, really good tie up. And I also appreciate that the business that they're in versus these tobacco companies that are masquerading as kind of philosophical initiatives with McLaren and with Ferrari. So I think this would be a really great deal for for Williams. Yeah, you know that uh, tobacco tie-up has never completely had disappeared from uh, from Formula One. Although it's it's obvious not as heavy as it was, you know, back in the eighties when you had like what was a Camel and Marlboro and right. God only yeah. knows what what else. Uh, you know, Rothmans, all these uh, Benson and Hedges. I mean, all these. Uh, that I think they were all sponsored by uh, tobacco companies at uh, at one point. But you know, more to your point, uh, you know, about them being a world class sponsor. I think that uh, you know this may be one of the first initial signs that we're seeing that the new management the new owners of williams are really starting to make their mark and if there was uh, you know no disrespect intended towards uh, the, the the williams family themselves but uh, you know it uh, th- this is a team that desperately needs uh, something and it, and it's money's just one component uh, that, that that they're after and if they can tie up a you know a, a, a first rate sponsor like bwt then that uh, I, I think that's maybe initial indication that things are starting to go in the right direction for uh, for for williams and then, of course, yep. well, it really has to come down to uh, you know, how do you do during the races and, uh, you know, the, the cars you're building. So, again, that's going to be uh, interesting one to watch. You know, as much as I, I love Frank and as much as I love Claire Williams, I, I think it was pretty widely read and reported that they were really struggling to bring on premier sponsors, partly because the team was underperforming, but also because there wasn't a lot of confidence that the two of them were going to be able to get this team back to a place where it would be worthy of cutting a check for 20 or 30 million euro a season. So I think you're right. And I hadn't thought about that. This this is really the first example of the new ownership structure, putting their stamp on that team and in, in that new ownership structure. I'm talking about Dorleton Capital, but yeah, great point. Great point. I'm just going to hold this up here for 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 the camera, but uh, you know you, you can see this one uh, whatever it is. Not sure the scale, but uh, you know it's a, it's a Williams 1990s era Damon Hill. I'm guessing this is probably what an FW Fort uh, 15 16. And you can tell just uh, just by the colors on here and just the way that it's kind of dashed out. Uh, yeah, we, we know which uh, tobacco company sponsored them uh, back back then. So there you go. Anyways, that's it, Mark. That that's all I got for for this week. Uh, you know, what what are we ninety minutes into this thing or not quite? Uh, but uh, that's all I got. I I got nothing else to say. I'm I'm actually well. I, we could go on for a while, but uh, I think this is a good point to leave it. You know what? Wait, wait, oh. wait. I have a very quick rant that I've wanted to get out forever. And because it was finalized this week, I feel now's the time to do it. So I'm going to do it quickly. Go so for it. I grew up in the UK as a young kid playing my Commodore 64 games. And one of my favorite publishers was a company called Codemasters. And Codemasters is still around. They're a British publishing house who happens to have the exclusive sole license to producing Formula One games for consoles. They do an exceptional job. Alas... This week, they were gobbled up by the behemoth, the monster that is Electronic Arts. So it's understood that Electronic Arts bought them because they wanted their IP and they wanted their existing licenses. So the problem is Electronic Arts, big publishing house, they have licenses to every racing franchise, to every sports league. They do FIFA, they do NBA Live, blah, 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 blah. They do everything. 
The, the biggest concern for me as an avid F1 Codemasters fan is they tend to buy up franchises and gut them and monetize the hell out of them. And when I say monetize, they are very, very good at creating one loot boxes, but also microtransactions, which means that I go out and spend $80 on a game. I drop it into my console and I immediately have to start swiping my credit card for every little add-on. Mm. You know what? I want to get those ultra grippy tires, five bucks on my credit card. You know what? I want to do an upgrade on my my Mercedes engine, five bucks. They're, they're very good at monetizing their properties without investing in them. So the risk is that Codemasters has historically done a really good job of evolving their engine and the driving dynamics um, year over year over year and their physics get better and better. The fear is that EA is going to institute the exact same formula that they have for all of their other franchises, which is loot boxes, microtransactions, milk the fans, and do only nominal upgrades year after year after year. So my mini rant is over. I had to get it out. I'm very apprehensive about Electronic Arts having the Formula One license. Granted, they had it back in the 2000s, but the gaming world was very, very different. I'm apprehensive. I'm nervous. Sorry, I had to get it out. I, I completely agree with a lot of things that you say, but I, you know, I'm I'm a little bit reluctant to criticize them too much because I have so many friends that work with for for EA. So I just know that if I say anything too much publicly, I, I'm probably not going to get like an employee discount on uh, you know the, the first EA branded <laughs> Formula One game. So hey, yeah. hey EA, f- prove us wrong. Prove us wrong. Exactly, I will right? buy the first iteration. I will spend my hard earned money, and then I will come back and do a review on the air. And if it's great, I will be humble and honest and admit it. If it's not, I will be very very, very transparent. There you go. Awesome. Okay, well, you finally got your rant out. I felt bad because uh, you know you sent me the, uh, the 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 link to that today. I'm like, oh yeah, we were going to talk about that last week or the week before, and then uh, I never let you have your, I, I never let you had your time up on the soapbox. So what grinds yeah. my gears? It's a new segment. <laughs> I, I could <laughs> another <laughs> new we segment. Well, well, what grinds my gears? We'll add that into MotoGP corner. You know, we'll just uh, kind of it's uh, you know we're, we're going to need yep. a three hour show by the time we get all these uh, things totally. worked in. Anyways, guys, thank you so much uh, for downloading, listening to the show, and watching to us on uh, and watching us up on uh, YouTube. And if you want to get in touch, easiest ways uh, to do so on Twitter at ScuderiaF1 or email us at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's a wrap. And uh, we'll talk and see you guys again this time next week. And we'll be one week closer to the start of the season. And like Mark said at the top of the show, we're almost in the same month of the same year <laughs> that we're going to have a Grand Prix. So you can literally feel it getting closer by the minute. And that's it. That's it for us. That's a wrap. Have a great weekend, guys. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now. <laughs>